I'm in love with you I say maybe Maybe I'm in love with you Good afternoon. You've got living writers. And today I'm so excited to be talking with my friend and colleague, Julie Babcock, about her latest book of poems, Rules for Rearrangement. Julie, Julie, welcome. Thank you, T. It's so great to at least talk to you when we can't see each other. (laughs) <laughs> in the hallways and yeah right and, uh, sharing triumphs and commiserations about classes and whatnot <laughs> yeah so many commiserations <laughs> yes and lots of good laughs too yes and anyway it was so lovely to actually see you in person that was such a treat it was so good to see you and to and to meet your your pup Bowie too yeah and I'm excited to meet yours too yeah we were outside and in front of uh, T's house in the snow with my dog (laughs) in our masks and 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 the sun was shining and it was kind of amazing it's yes I I should say today we are the sun is shining again here in Michigan a snowy day we're we're at the end of January and but when we air this show it's going to be super exciting because it's going to be February 3rd 2021 and Julie Babcock will be heading to Literati Bookstore via a Zoom screen <laughs> It's a long journey. It's exactly just a few steps away. <laughs> so that will be happening on February 3rd at 7 p.m. That'll be the live event. Yes, it's the day after Groundhog Day. <laughs> so what does Groundhog Day mean to you? Well, I I was I was thinking about scheduling uh, the reading with the literati and and my partner Um, who has a really wonderful knack of when I get stressed about something, noticing something really weird. (laughs) He was like, oh my gosh, because we were thinking about Groundhog Day or the day after, and I didn't know what that it was that. But anyways, he stopped me and he was like, that's Groundhog Day or the day after Groundhog Day. So anyways, that's, that's my partner helping me pay attention to important things. And and that's that's David Ward, can, the writer David Ward. Absolutely, yes. Oh, and He's I'd, great. I'd, li- I'd like to do a shout out to Ambrose too, the wonderful and incredible and fantastic Ambrose. <laughs> he just finished his uh, first semester of exams. So high school exams, it's nuts. Oh, man. Well, I mean, I hope he's can kick up his heels a bit then. He's um, totally kicking up his heels right now. He did really well. And so now he's just playing a lot of Minecraft. Perfect. <laughs> and Literati yeah. Reading on February 3rd at 7 p.m. It will be a live event. And will this be the, the launch for Rules for Rearrangement, Julie? It will be. So that's exciting. Um, and also kind of a weird, the book came out in November, but because of the pandemic, I really didn't get a lot of copies out till um, really the end of December. Yeah. So it's a book launch a few months after the book came out, but it's still a book launch or anyways, I'm calling it a book launch. I think it almost is meant to be. This is is the right time. And this uh, Rules for Rearrangement, I should say, is out with Glass Lear Press 2020. And 
it's the winner of the 2019 Cathara Book Prize as well. Yeah. Julie, do you want to say a, a word about what this meant for Rules for Rearrangement? Yeah, I mean, it, it's really nice to win a prize. I'm really good at not winning prizes. And so when one does, it's really wonderful. I think I've won two prizes in my life. And the first one was in second grade. And I was um, in a talent show for the school. And I uh, recited uh, Shel Silverstein's poem, Paul Bunyan. And I had like little pigtails and overalls. And like I won best of show like I won uh against the fifth graders second grader it was really wow. cool wow um <laughs> and then this yeah I love I love I've always grown up with poetry and I learned to read um through Shel Silverstein books so where the sidewalk ends I was like four four years old kind of pouring over that book yeah, this winning this prize, the second prize after my second grade accomplishment was, was really uh, a really wonderful thing. Um, the book took me a long time to write and then to also get out into the world. Um, and so I it had been like a finalist at a lot of different contests and it seems like anyways with me and I know a lot of writers writer friends I have say this like you try and you try and then you almost give up hope mm-hmm. and then everything works out <laughs> I'm so glad it did Julie and it's a beautiful book it's a beautiful one to hold in your hands and and folks can order it right from Glasslier Press right from their website yeah. but also all uh, any other distribution outlets that you're you know that one would go to and also literati bookstore absolutely yes julie babcock is the author of the poetry collection autoplay mg press 2014 her poetry fiction and hybrid writing appear in journals and anthologies including the rumpus split lip magazine and new poetry from the midwest she teaches writing in an interdisciplinary program at the University of Michigan and is currently at work on a novel. Is the novel Visible Man, Julie? It, um, yes and no. Um, so yes, <laughs> and also it's probably gonna have yet another title. Um, I had, yeah, I've been, <laughs> it takes me a, a long time to write something. So I've been working on this novel now for, I don't know time, but maybe six years or so. And it was originally called A Game We Played and then it became titled uh, Visible Man, which is kind of a nod to one of the best books in the world, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Yes. Um, yes. And now I'm reconsidering uh, the point of view structure for uh, half the novel. Um, so as I'm reconsidering the point of view, mm. um, I may be retitling it again, but I don't have another title. So we'll say it's Visible Man. For the moment. For the moment. <laughs> Let's start talking about this this beautiful book that we've got um, each in our own on our own tables, our desks here as we <laughs> talk. Rules for Rearrangement. Julie, can you talk? You said it was a long time in the making this book as well. <laughs> the book deals with loss and grief not deals deals with is such a a a flimsy way 
of even phrasing that. Would you mind talking a bit about how the poem, the beginning poems, the first poems mm-hmm. of Rules for a Rearrangement, how how they started for you? Yeah. Well, um, and I, yeah, I, I, enjoy, I don't know if enjoy is the right word. Verbs. <laughs> I just <laughs> with one of my classes, we concentrated on um, just yesterday verbs and like. <laughs> Uh, how they can help shape the work that we do. Um, And definitely, yeah, so to hear you be like, okay, deals with, maybe that's not the right (laughs) verb, but um, I struggled so much with thinking about what is it I'm I'm doing with this book and how how to talk about it. Um, And certainly when I first started writing these poems, I wasn't envisioning them as a book. I was envisioning them as uh, not even really poems. They were just like these little blobs of things. Um, Mm -hmm. I love prose poetry and um, most of them were set up as kind of prose blocks um, that just was articulating something usually weird um, that was going on um, in my life. Um, This book covers the uh, sudden or is inspired by um, the sudden death of my late husband. And he died almost almost exactly 10 years ago. Um, It'll be 10 years uh, next week. And um, it was such a like overwhelming experience in every way. Um, and I really didn't know who, like literally like, who am I? Where am I? What's happening? Like I was disconnected from my own body. I was disconnected from like the people around me and um, just really trying to uh, trying to articulate that strangeness. Um, yes. So, uh, yeah, the beginning poems were really just just those attempts to uh, document my own, yeah, my own experience not knowing what was happening. Um, and then uh, after a little while, after I got some poems under my belt, I was like, this is something I need to do for myself. Um, And I didn't really have the time or the resources to do that. Um, I, at the time that my husband died, I was on a semester by semester contract uh, teaching at the university. So I didn't have, um, you know, a stable job. And um, I had a child who at the time was four years old um, and no family living in the area. So one of the things that this book really um, made me realize is, and, and something that some people realize or, or live with all the time, is that resources are real yes. <laughs> and we need them desperately. And so one of the gifts I gave myself that I'm so lucky I did is I was like, all right, I can, I can pay for three hours of babysitting a week, and I'm going to go to school, actually. I'm going to leave the house. I am going to write a poem in my office at school, and then I will come back, and the babysitter will leave, and then I will go back to doing mom things. So, 
or teaching things or whatever I was doing. So um, I would say the great majority of these poems were written one at a time every Sunday for about a year and a half between the hours of uh, 1 and 4 p.m. <laughs> wow. From things you've said over the years, maybe even at our um, our unit meetings uh, at Sweetland, or mm-hmm. just know that you are determined to have and to find and to create that time for the writing, even even going to a residency or you know like you're, mm-hmm. you've done that through the these ten years that I've known you. Yeah, it's I mean. It's interesting how I'm not as good at it right now. I'm in a, you know, much less desperate space. Um, And so so sometimes people will be like, how do you remain so determined? And I'm like, well, usually that determination is born of some kind of desperation. And and so I was... uh, amazingly on point with my determination at the, at the points where I was most desperate. I mean, people say that poetry can save your life, that writing can save your life. Um, and, you know, as a 20-year-old hearing that, it sound, in kind of my own privileged sphere, um, sounded hyperbolic. And then I experienced it, and it does. And um, I know... I actually, before Matthew died, I had um, applied for and gotten a full month scholarship or fellowship at the Vermont Studio Center for Fiction. Um, And I was really excited about that. And we had made plans about, you know, how we were going to orchestrate childcare with this and stuff, like to go off and write for a month. Like, wow. Um, And so I knew about that, like, a year before Matthew died and then um, the fellowship was scheduled to happen or the residency was supposed to happen three and a half months after he died. So I talked to them and oh my gosh, the people at the Vermont Studio Center are like the most amazing people in the world. <laughs> like They're really amazing. And I don't think I made much sense. Um, the first message was like an answering machine message where I think I cried through half of it. Um, but I was like, I really want this fellowship, but I can't do it. I've got a kid and I don't know what to do. And um, they called me back and we talked through it and I decided to just do two weeks of it and my parents came up and they watched my son while I did that two weeks and um, I was scared to leave him for that long at that point and so they actually traveled up to Vermont for the second week Um, and so he got to meet some of the cool people at the Vermont Studio Center Um, that that idea of determination is is definitely something that I'm really glad I had. I come from like a lower class Midwestern Ohio upbringing and I, you know, <laughs> pull your out, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and go to work is like really ingrained in me. And also um, I've enjoyed like this past year, I feel like I should be done with this novel and that it should be good and that it should be out in the world. And yet I'm not, I'm not doing, you know, in reality enough work to make that happen right now. And I'm kind of enjoying that, or maybe not even kind of, like I am, like 
to be able to breathe and say, you know what, if you don't really accomplish much today, that's okay too. It, and it is okay because that's also a necessary way of being and yeah. I think a way of working too because of a level of intensity might be more somehow natural or healthy to have it be in waves or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's certain times where there's an intensity and whether that intensity comes from like your own living circumstances or the content um, you're working on or um, some, some something else. But but there's times for intensity and then there's times to to um, kind of relax. <laughs> Would you read us a poem? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, thinking about the early it's interesting how like it's so clear for a while like what's in early like I know what my later poems are and then I'm like what are kind of my earliest poems um I think is it more that these poems were like the trying to understand and these feelings and images and then later you kind of rearranged or so <laughs> yeah that, well the rearranging like metaphorical but super literal um, yeah <laughs> everything I was doing was rearrangement all the time including this book um I you know for a while I didn't know and in fact that that Vermont fellowship was was for fiction um oh, right 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 you said that <laughs> so yes. it wasn't even yeah you know this book and and actually autoplay came out a couple years after I had that residency, but autoplay was pretty much done. So the order of when things happen and where our minds are is really mysterious um, to me. (laughs) Yes, Yes, to me too. Here's here's an early one. I have a a couple poems side by side, and I'll read one of them um, where... uh, yeah, where basically, I, I won't say anything. Yeah, <laughs> this is one of two companion poems, and the poems don't have titles. Um, and this is something that uh, my friend and poet uh, Joe Chapman uh, suggested. The poems used to have titles. They used to look really different. Like I said, most of the ones that I wrote at the beginning started out as just blocks of prose um that then I was really starting to think about okay how can I like use poetic structures and break kind of poetic structures because I you know at the time felt like (laughs) breaking a lot of things yeah so yeah. yeah so this one um yeah none of them have titles thanks Joe Chapman he said let the reader wander with you and I think that's really good advice yes she is told to write a valentine to the dead what he would say what she would say to him if he was alive no what she would say to him dead like he is but able to receive a message every day she tries to get it right she is ashamed of her anger and this writing going on and on about her when they first met he handed her a glass of water the chip in the rim why he reached out to touch her lips. When they first met, he wrote a poem, my days are dogs that don't come when I call. They met and he took photographs of her red car 
as it aged. He didn't like change. He didn't like it when a thunderstorm blew out the electricity. Every day, she isn't trying hard enough. She wants to say she loves him. She wants her message pure, a flashlight and a whistle. Thanks, Julie. <laughs> Poems saved me in so many ways over like, you know, a really, uh, a, a real period of uh, complete, completely being overwhelmed for I, I'd say like what, five time whatever but like five years of just really not knowing what I wanted to do and how I could function in the world and who I was um, and so uh, removing kind of the guides that help us make sense of the world became really comforting to me <laughs> um, in a lot of these poems and so um, whether the, a lot of these poems are formatted really differently on the pages um, but yeah. one of the things so line breaks the way that a lot of the um, poems in here are broken um, and you can tell because then the lines are indented are ones that could like in a Whitmanic way just keep going like if yes. the page didn't, if we didn't have the physical limits of the page, it could be a line that just kept going rather than um, like a decisive line break. Um, and in this one, it's interesting. I, I was really thinking a lot about the structure of couplets and poems and um, that I just really like the idea of couplets seemed mean to me <laughs> at the time. Like, like how dare these, how dare these two lines get to hang out lovingly together? I don't get to hang out lovingly together. And so right. kind of <laughs> make, making those couplets defamiliarized in some way. Um, there's a, um, dropped line at the end, which interestingly enough, this is one of the, um, I guess, first poems I wrote in the collection. Um, and yet the dropped line was a pretty new thing. Um, a couple of years ago, I went to the Northwoods uh, Minnesota Writers Conference and I uh, did a workshop with Amy Nezahuma Katadal, who is so amazing. And she um, was teaching a hybrid workshop and we were creating some hybrid writing and she looked at some of the poems in this collection and made a few suggestions um and that that was one of them she's like i i do some line drops i'm like <laughs> okay amy that sounds great <laughs> and and also it's interesting because i at that point um the book had already won the contest and was coming out and um and she's like, and I'd write a couple new poems. And it's interesting ah. because uh, I did the same thing for autoplay, but I didn't think I'd do that for this collection. But I did. I went back home and I'm like, okay. Because I, I thought when I went to work with Amy, I was working on something new. And, and constantly I'm always amazed at how whatever we work on is connected to, like, there, there's no, like, way you just completely drop 
what you were doing and then pick up a totally new thing even if it's a new genre and a new subject matter and stuff there's there's these lines that just intersect in these overwhelming ways that you can't stop anyways so Amy got me to write a few new poems and she also got me to drop a few lines (laughs) how great though that you felt even though the book like you had said had been chosen for the prize and sometimes that can start maybe to make something feel like oh it is the thing itself Mm -hmm. where did those poems land in the structure of it Julie because the structure is so amazing we have the news is the first text we have Mm -hmm. can you walk us through the structure and then maybe where those new poems decided to land (laughs) yeah sure um uh, one of the things, like, like I said, the process of losing somebody that you deeply love and um, and losing is, you know, weird verbs. That's a really weird verb yeah. um, that I just use that I don't usually use. But um, what do you usually say, Julie? I, I usually try to say he died. <laughs> That 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 I did not lose him. He's still very much with me, um, and and you know we take the people that you know are important to us, and and they become like they they become part of us. It's it's kind of an awesome magical act. You have and, poems like that in here, Julie. Wait, I don't mean sorry. Yeah. I didn't. Yeah, mean no, to, go for it. <laughs> well, no, I didn't mean to. Yeah. But do you you finish what you're saying? I'm so sorry. You say it. That 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 is it. It 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 is just an awesome magical act, and that's what I'll say about that. So so in the in rules for rearrangement, you do have poems. I believe at least this one reader felt like there were moments where the use the the you was um, the you of the speaker and not the speaker it's because speak I what I was trying to think was this the shock of Matthew's death Mm -hmm. after this you are you but you are not you and Mm -hmm. and and that's the the speaker in rules for rearrangement this is the voice here and then there's poems where I feel like that duality is there and then there's one where it feels like in the same space the same page the same poem um it's the you is you and then to to me as a reader it felt like the you was then also um matthew as well mm-hmm. um i don't know if this makes sense or if that's what what is indeed it what does. was on the page or um and maybe i should yeah what yeah what were you gonna say julie well i mean it it makes a lot of sense like so much of you know if somebody is no longer like able to sit with you physically in the world um to to find them in other ways and so that was definitely like definitely um I was in this collection trying to figure out who I was because like a giant part of my identity had had been been ripped away suddenly and it's it's really really uh, deeply uh confusing um and and also I was searching for him and so yes. along the way you know both of those things happen like 
who am I, who am I without this person? And also this person has never left and oh my gosh, I found them again today. So, um, we hung out today. So, um, all those things are true. And, and in the writing of these poems with the shifts too, Julia, I'm noticing sometimes it's, um, the voices in the third person. She married him here at the Tippecanoe battlefield, the site of, you, mm-hmm. you know, and here I found one of the poems where I was thinking the you is the same you as the I. And do you mind? Mm-hmm. It's, it's the one that's on page 56 and the first line of, and it's with the Roman numerals. And the first line is the monitor canoe trips, people rent you a canoe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is a a short one, um, and and it's it's also interesting to hear like what what other people's experience of of the reading and and where I'm to yeah, <laughs> where the you is I or the I is combined with other people. Um, I will say that this is in a section called guide um, and and you had asked a question about the structure of the book. And I think one of the things that I wanted to do was disrupted this notion that people go through like these seven stages of grief um, that uh, the, the idea of linearity with this kind with, with grief and, and with um, yeah, this, this presence that is no longer able to be in your life in the way that you've depended upon it um, is is not linear. It's not linear at all. And so I wanted to create a structure that defied linearity. Um, yes. And um, this section is from a section called Guide. Um, and it's really not a guide. Like at the beginning of the guide, there's like a picture of a little, little labyrinth. And it's like this guide consists of many guides and you can go in any order you want. <laughs> um, and that part of this uh, section is based on erasures from a, basically a field guide that the poet Maryam Baruch gave us um, as MFA students a long time ago. It was a long time ago. I was in that MFA program <laughs> uh, to welcome us to the area. And it was amazing because it was on um, these, uh, it, it was back when people still got hard copies of things. And Marianne had typed up these notes of cool places, cool parks to go in the area on a it looked like a typewriter. I think she used a typewriter and then she cut it to book size and it was just regular paper and, and side stapled. And I found it in my stuff. And, and this is the place where I met Matthew. So I met Matthew during my um, MFA program a long time ago. Um, so to find that guide yes. was just really amazing. And, and this section, the whole section guide was a later part of like this is kind of more recent stuff than what I was first writing um it was like I don't know what else to say and then I was like Marianne found stuff for me to say um but so this is uh, a section in guide and there's two lines that are direct um sentences from Marianne's guide 
and then there's two sentences that I just wrote and then I understruck. So um, my understruck lines are the two in the middle. This is like the least poetic poem I can think of, so I love that you asked me to read it. Um, (laughs) The monitor canoe trips people rent you a canoe. I'm not going to paddle, you tell me. I'm going to stay in this hell. The river runs fairly rapidly, so the canoes are rather (laughs) self-propelled. They're Julie. So so those are those moments where I thought, yeah, the you is the you and not you or so Mm -hmm. of the speaker. I love this section guide because also in this section there's a lot of different things going on this is like where you said yes they were these two lines were crossed out there's lots of space and isolated Mm -hmm. words on pages and moving across the page there's also erasures in here that are are very severe erasures which Mm -hmm. is you're experiencing the use of erasure feels very powerful to me in this too yeah I It was a real gift to find that. that, Like I said, this was probably, I would say about two thirds of the poems that are in here were written. And I was, I was looking to see where to go. And I found, I found Marianne's guide and I'm like, oh my gosh, somebody can guide me. (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) (laughs) And, And what a wonderful guy, because like, what I loved about the guide when I picked it up is how many memories flooded back of my time with Matthew and also of my time uh, right before Matthew, where I was like, I'm beginning to be a professional poet, you know, Yes. Um, and how wonderful Marianne was and all that. She's just a wonderful poet and a wonderful teacher. And she um, is so, um, she's so understated in this wonderful witty way and um the guide itself like brought her to me um that there'd be like this really helpful practical information about a park and then a line like (laughs) you know the river runs fairly rapidly so the canoes are rather (laughs) self-propelled um and like life sometimes yeah yeah and in and those delights of where information and person come together was just a wonderful gift to me um and in the I mean it, it was so wonderful for Marianne to kind of I thought of her as like keeping me company um mm, and yeah. you know um a lot of the poems in that section aren't pulling from that actual artifact of her guide at all um you can tell which ones are because they look like massive erasures so if you get to a page and you're like it looks like a lot of words are missing that's definitely me taking marianne's text and and taking out um and erasures are such an amazing form because like um Susan Howe and so many people have talked about the uh, it's it's like you're a detective and you're decoding a secret message that's just for you yeah. and um, yeah. I I love I think Mary Ruefly has a wonderful essay about that in uh, Madness Rack and Honey as well um, 
But yeah, I, I, I felt almost like a detective taking out my decoder pen <laughs> and like, you know, getting getting a message that I needed because you see what you need to see. Um, and that is how life goes. Um, and then I guess the other thing with guide is I, I wanted to be a companion to myself. Yes. So the you and I, like there's, yeah, I'm, I'm both the guide and the companion. Um, and I also, so many people, uh, like one, once something like this happens to you, you realize how many people it's happened to. And so I was also thinking about me being a guide for other real people, for other real readers or just people in the world who also needed uh, to feel like they weren't alone. Yes, yes. And to also by by being in this book with you under having their their own experience and also knowing that it's not linear you know, like, like mm -hmm. having, like reading this book, then you experience the non-linearity of it. And to, to know that others know by being in mm -hmm. these poems that would, that comes through and your, your lovely first line for guide, you are here. You cannot fully explain. Yeah. Yeah. And then you turn and that occupies a whole um, page and facing page and you turn the page and that's when you see the the image and this is the only I believe it's the only drawing in rules for rearrangement Julie yeah and you said it was like a maze and when I looked at it I saw it as mandala yeah yeah so yeah I said maze but um I I, I wanted something on there that could help people experience kind of magic and um and this sense of the impossibility of linearity um and it was amazing because you know usually poetry presses you're like hey can i put an image in the middle of the book and they're like no that costs more money um but uh glass layer press was amazing they um yeah they let me put it there. I actually had a different picture first to <laughs> in whole disclosure. And they're like, that's too expensive. I'm like, fine. Um, can you do this? And they're like, all right. And um, I, I just love that they allowed that to happen. Um, what a wonderful press and Amy Kay at the head of it. She is just um, so supportive of of the poetry community and they let you pick not just me anybody they let you pick um the cover that you want and talk with you steve asmussen who uh, designed the book you know uh gave me lots like i got to pick the images and then he designed it in a bunch of different ways and then let me pick from that and let me have a conversation about it um the back of the book um, is pretty different than most poetry books because I had my bio and all the blurbs removed from it so that it could just be kind of an empty space with lighted windows and then one one part of one blurb at the top. Um, and I just, I wanted there to be space. Uh, I wanted people to be able to have a space where they could go and fill it with what they needed to fill it with. 
in 15 and in the Roman numeral 15, when you say you wake and stretch and crack open in every direction, (laughs) and then in the next stanza, the land changes. And then we are taken to an 80 year old agave plant in a greenhouse. And I wondered if that was like the one at the Matai Botanical Garden. Yes. Yeah. Can you tell us about (laughs) that moment? And then... I please read more poems for us anywhere <laughs> in rules for rearrangement. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh my gosh, one of my very favorite places in Ann Arbor is the Matai uh, Botanical Garden, um, and it has been since I moved here um, 16 years ago. Um, it is a place where I just, anytime I feel overwhelmed or burnt out or a host of other things I go there and it centers me and it's so beautiful um and I I could yeah so I could I could go on and on about how much I love that place um and at the at the time when I was writing this this was back in 2014 they had um an agave plant that was 80 years old and um it was about to bloom and these plants only bloom once in their lifetimes um so they grow they bloom once and then they die um and what's amazing like so that's interesting and amazing and wondrous um Another thing is they usually live like 25 years or something, and this one was 80 years old. So way older than you usually get to see one of these plants. And then the other amazing thing is that it was growing so fast and so high that the greenhouse couldn't hold it. And they actually, in the last part of its growing, they had to remove a couple of the panes of glass in the ceiling of the greenhouse to allow it to go to continue to grow and bloom. So uh, I go there all the time um, and I would go there a lot and look at that plant and and I love it. It <laughs> also felt such a hopeful, clear moment in, mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in a time where like in many of the poems, there's so many different emotions and the surreal quality of experience and emotion being captured. So this was this was also really lovely to come to, as well. Um. I'm glad I'm glad you recognized it. It's a, yeah, it's it's amazing how many um, like as writers how we take the the real things that are happening in the world and um, marry them with our own experience and. Um, there, there's so much of that, I think, in everyone's writing. But in this book, I was particularly conscious of that. And, and I needed it, like this idea of there's something outside of sorrow um, and, and just being able to grab it and, and have it be a part was a wonderful gift. There's um, a lot of... Uh, thinking about real life and then also literary life um, that you that exists otherwhere and and you taking it for your own Um, and so there's like a lot of references to the Odyssey in here which I used to read as a work of fiction and now I read it and kind of weep like oh my gosh this is so true and uh, other fairy tales and um, 
here, uh, this one is about gingerbread um, and definitely pulls on Hansel and Gretel. Uh, that story, it also came from um, me going to my parents with my son for Christmas. And, you know, I love my parents and, you know, Christmas is a nice holiday in some ways, but um, when your life has been completely torn apart and re-put together, Christmases kind of are crappy um, (laughs) and difficult. And I was, I was going down to see them and this poem uh, came because I told um, my partner, David, I just need, I need a couple words so that I can write some poems down there. And I forget what the other word is. He gave me two because I asked for two, but um, (laughs) one of the words he gave me was gingerbread. She shall soon find a way. Gingerbread after an exile, after the funeral pyre has smoked down and the last breadcrumbs stolen. How sweet now to have found this forest, house, ground cinnamon and ginger, spiced bark and root, a revival. Of course she eats it. Life belongs to whoever can find it, to whoever keeps walking and trying. Children know this, that eating one door leads to another, that when captured, she grabs a handful of gingerbread cake, lines her pockets with crispy cookies, licks icing along a window. She is what she does, she is a molasses dark shape in the trees. I, I so love that line. She is what she does. <laughs> she is. And then we have that drop line, a molasses dark shape in the trees. Why did you choose that one to read, Julie? I That's a good question. I marked a few. And that one, like, I, th- I think uh, tonally, uh, walking through this book, figuring out, you know, if you're going to read a couple, uh, should they be, you know, there's, there's poems in here that are from the depths of despair. And there's poems in here that are kind of playful, um, in a very, uh, bleak kind of humor. Um, (laughs) sometimes people, uh, that haven't been through really difficult things in their life don't understand when people that have laugh, a lot mm. at things that don't sound very funny, but, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but it's very, very important. Um, so, so there's, there's kind of poems that are kind of like very dark jokes. Um, and, and then there's helpful poems and, and I would say also, I guess, so this one is, you know, a hopeful poem and it's definitely when you were talking about determination and <laughs> just, this is a poem of determination. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And Julia, it's funny. On the top of this page, I, I wrote the word life. Yeah, that's cool. And trees reoccur throughout mm-hmm. rules for rearrangement, too, and leaves. Yeah. Yeah, the natural world is, like, for me, so, so important um, to kind of reconnect and contextualize your own self within like a, a bigger whole. Um, and it always has been. And like this past year, a lot of people I think are reconnecting in that way because they're being separated from 
um, all of these people that they love and that are, you know, they're part of their lives. And so just in sitting in front of computers, zooming all day. And so kind of the, the basic, and I've heard this from my students a lot, like the basic act of walking outside is so awesome. <laughs> and um, yeah, the trees become very important to me and, and watching how they grow is, is just overwhelmingly a miracle and the, and the ways how long they can live and how deep the roots go and how much they can change um, is is pretty darn wondrous yeah <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. i read so you have me read an early one i'll read um i i wrote um two new poems for the collection after I left Amy's workshop. Um, and one of them, I'll let you choose T. The, these are the two um, newest poems in the collection. Um, one of them is the very last poem in the collection um, where the she is talking uh, to her beloved about Bob Dylan. <laughs> And then the other one is when she gets pulled over for some speeding tickets oh, right. and there's a cyclops. Right. Oh, <laughs> oh, that's so okay. I do love that, that the last line of the, the poem, but you know what? I did wonder if the last poem in the book was mm -hmm. one of the new poems, Julie, would you mind reading that one? Absolutely. Yeah. Or no, I would not okay, mind. Okay, okay. I, absolutely I know. I actually it. never know how to answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Affirmative. Um, yeah. He returns from the dead so they can discuss Bob Dylan, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature. People are in an uproar. Should a man doing one thing be recognized for another? He removes his long trench coat that makes him look like a detective and pours himself a glass of milk. What he says always interests her. Dylan's entrance into the civil rights movement with Like a Rolling Stone, an exit from the folk music scene after playing it electric. The time Dylan joined the band to collaborate. His hand drifts to hers and his eyes are oak branches in water. My love, he says, nothing is ever one thing. They recall the 1998 Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell show, where Joni bitched out the two guys standing in front of the stage who weren't listening. I'm a real person up here, she said, not an effing TV. The song before that, he swayed behind her, hands cupped against her hips, the closest he ever got to dancing. She looped blood on the tracks the week she watered his houseplants, and when he returned, they scattered pillows on the floor and watched Don't Look Back. He says, I can't stop touching you, and scoots closer. Vibrations in the carpet, a vanilla-scented candle, notes across the side of her neck as he brushes her hair away. Thank you, Julie. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for reading that poem because it feels so true to this this idea that you were talking about 
a bit earlier in our conversation about how you don't lose someone when they die. Mm -hmm. He is with you. Matthew is with you. This moment that was, Mm -hmm. because he would have loved that Bob Dylan won this prize. I know. (laughs) So psyched. (laughs) It's, it's, it's really magical. Um, And, 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 awesome and I'm really grateful for those moments but we did we we had a conversation when I wrote that poem we were having a conversation and it was real it is real Julie thanks so much for talking with me today about rules for rearrangement it's a really wonderful pleasure and like you are you are the best person to talk to Ah. T. Hetzel (laughs) Jeez. Oh, Julie. <laughs> so, so, um, I know you said you're, you're, um, you're taking it slow now and not having the pressure of the novel on a, you know, the, a daily or weekly basis. Mm-hmm. Is the novel what sort of occupying that creative space for you? And are there, are there other fragments and pieces that you're working on? Or is it more when you're going to that creative space is it is it the novel the novel the novel's been in my really at the front and center of my creative mind the last um I'd say five years although when I went to that workshop with Amy the idea was okay I it was the first time I had only been working on one thing. I usually have multiple projects going and so um I'm like, "Oh my gosh, I need to start writing poetry again." And I was scared. I was really scared to try and write a poem after I wrote this book. Um oh. because it was such a it it was such a, to me a closed system in some way. Like, you know, I'm I wrote this book and this is why I wrote it and like what is what is possible to write about now and in what structure um, can I do that and how can I like even understand how to articulate what's important to me now in in a in a way that is you know meaningful and um, and Amy really helped loosen me up with that so uh I'm grateful and and also just thinking about like where I was at the beginning of writing rules for rearrangement and thinking about you know how how do I even begin this what what who am I (laughs) what's happening that at the end of this book I came back to those same questions and uh luckily they were not um, like, luckily, I was able to breathe at the same time I was asking those questions. Um, and yeah. um, there wasn't the desperation there that um, there was at the beginning of writing this book, but those questions still remain. Um, so that is a very long answer T to um, a pretty pragmatic question, but novel, I've been working on it. Um, and uh, it's taken all different kinds of forms and been rearranged so many ways and I'm very excited about it and I've got some challenges ahead with it and then I've got a few poems in my bag thanks to Amy um, that I'm gonna 
go to at some point soon and um, try and build. Do you do you have one of those new poems near you now, Julie, to read? I've got poems, but I don't know even what. Um, well, it, it was interesting because I thought I thought it was going to be different, and then I went and I was like, "Oh my God, this is still connected." Oh um, wow! Okay, you did say that the you think something is over and that it's still it's still with you and it's and it's in the work. Yeah. Okay. I found it. Okay. So, <laughs> sorry. That that was an amazing, like, what is called, what is that poem called? Just how far I had pushed it. But um, one of the things that Amy asked us to do was um, to create an obod. Um, and um, this was the first one I've ever written where I was like, all right, this is really the structure. Um, and usually obods are um, kind of addressed to lovers, but um, this one I addressed to my son, um, Ambrose, uh, in Rules for Rearrangement. He was very much, you know, front and center in my life at the time I was writing the collection, but then um, I kept him out of the poetry collection because it was just too overwhelming and staggering to think about how I could bring him in. And so um, this is one of the first poems I've ever written where Ambrose is, is here. Yeah. So this is called Obad. You are older. It keeps happening every morning. The sun lights its match against the ground and catches on the fence outside our kitchen window. I don't pour your cereal anymore. You pour it yourself. And you use too much milk after I remind you to put down your phone. What are you watching? Let me play you a song. Am I annoying you yet? You flash a crooked Clint Eastwood smile just like your dad's before his heart quit. A smile you only had four years of mornings to see. And I am caught up in the miracle breaking all around us. That he is here when he's dead. That you are the most spectacular person I've ever seen. That you love me even after what I failed to give you. Soon, this morning will flare into the sky and radiate as if we were whole. We are. Before you leave, you tell me the world has 45 time zones and that we should visit each one. And then the white door opens by the faded handprint chickens and your bike sparks down the driveway. Come back. I was terrified we would turn to ash. Julie, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for this poem, this this last poem for today. I've loved talking with you. It's been a real pleasure, T. And oh, yeah, I'm hugging you, and um, <laughs> I'm receiving the hug. Today on the program, Julie Babcock, her book out with Glass Lear Press, Rules for Rearrangement. I'm T. Hetzel. 
Until next time.